Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing. My name is Josiah, and I'm one of the pastors at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. You know, during this time of increased isolation due to COVID-19, we at the church have thought and prayed a lot about how best we can minister to our church family in spite of the abnormal setup and less than ideal circumstances that we're now facing. And one such way, obviously, was the resource that you're now listening to, this podcast. The original intent, as we've said before, was to give another touch point between Sundays where we could unpack further the sermon and, and flesh out potential application because we as God's people want to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And we still are and will do that. But as you've noticed, the podcast quickly expanded in its scope to include conversations on topics we think are beneficial with people we want you to know. So not only has this become a place where we can discuss important issues, but it's also a place where we can introduce you uh, to people and resources you may not otherwise be aware of. And today's conversation, the one you're about to listen to, I hope will be the epitome of those two goals. Today we want to talk about the always pressing issue of assurance of salvation. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? Is certainty even possible? These are important questions and we want to tackle those today. And to help us with this topic, I want to introduce you to a man who over the past number of years, unbeknownst to him, has had a huge impact on my thinking and my theology and my spiritual life. And so again, I'm excited to introduce to my church family today, Dr. Christopher Cohn. Now, Dr. Cohn has been the president of multiple theological institutions. He's a professor, a preacher, and a churchman. He has three earned doctoral degrees, has written, contributed to, or edited over a dozen books, and currently serves as the president and CEO of Agathon EDU Educational Group. Now, I've heard him speak in the past on the topic of assurance of salvation and, and thought that would be a good place for us to go today. So, as always, I hope you're blessed by the conversation that comes. Well, as I said, I already introduced you prior to you coming on, but why don't I uh, give you the chance to uh, do a better job than me and tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Cohn, and about your family and about the work that you're up to these days. Wow. Well, uh, God has been uh, very gracious. I have a lovely bride. Uh, name is Kathy. We've been married 28 years. Uh, two daughters, Christiana and Kara, uh, 18 and 14. And uh, they're growing in godliness and uh, just uh, uh, involved in school and a lot of other things. So we're, we're thankful for how God is using them and growing them. Uh, I've had the privilege of being involved in in uh, education and pastoring, uh, have uh, had some opportunities to to lead in some some different churches and seminaries and universities, uh, um, and uh, have recently uh, been immersed in uh, the development of a new educational group called Agathon Edu, uh, which agathonedu.com, which is uh, it's a it's kind of a federation of ministries and companies with uh, uh, what will end up being several schools underneath it. And the idea is to provide shared services for these different uh, ministries and, and, and companies 
so that they don't all have to have all the same resources. That's one of the big problems in Christian higher education uh, and higher education in general is the, uh, the inefficiency of it. So we're, we're trying to do something about that to help and come alongside some of these institutions. Uh, so I've been heavily immersed in that. Uh, obviously uh, spending a lot of time writing and uh, uh, have a couple of, well, I'm always working on at least six books at a time. Uh, just That's just how it works. Uh, so probably a, a couple will publish this year and a couple uh, next year. Um, and so, yeah, just enjoy every opportunity to serve the Lord. I love engaging with uh, brothers and sisters who are, are diligent at the task of, uh, of his word and walking in him. And so I'm delighted to be with you and uh, get to interact with you, Josiah. Well, thanks. And, and having read a number of your books, I know that uh, you've shaped my thinking a lot on uh, even just how to handle the Bible, how to read it, how to study it, how to apply it. Also, all the way down to spiritual gifts. That was a very formative book, your work on spiritual gifts as well. And so there's a number of things that we could talk about that I'm sure would be encouraging to the people listening. But what I want to talk to you about uh, most today is about the topic of assurance of salvation. In other words, how, do, how can we be sure that we are saved? How do we know that we're going to heaven when we die? And so I want to begin by asking you this question. You know, from your point of view, uh, what are some of the greatest obstacles to believers to enjoying this assurance of salvation? That's a great question. And, and this is, interestingly, this is the number one struggle for new believers. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily go away quickly. Uh, uh, and so often it is because we have a, maybe an immature view of what God has actually accomplished on our behalf. So, and I remember this, I grew up in a Christian home you know, my, my parents were missionaries, and we were involved in, in, in ministry. Loved the Lord for as long as I can remember. But I absolutely remember lacking assurance uh, for, for a few years uh, and really struggling with that. So I've experienced that, as I'm sure most, most believers have, and, and many are still wrestling with that. But some of the obstacles would be, I think really not understanding, and the primary one would be would be not really understanding what God has done on our behalf. Uh, related to that is when we fail, uh, when we aren't living what we would think of as a victorious life, uh, then that doubt see, it begins to creep in because we're supposed to be these new creatures, but yet my behavior isn't reflecting that. Maybe I'm not a new creature after all. So there's another obstacle. Probably the saddest of all, those two can be overcome uh, just by the, the maturity process, but probably the, the saddest obstacle of all, in my mind, is uh, the many teachers who are teaching very, I'll say clumsily, uh, and, and uh, messing up the simplicity of salvation, which essentially is leading people down the wrong path a path of total uh, 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 lack of confidence in their position in Christ. You know, one particular leader in the uh, in in uh, a, a particular brand of salvation, which I won't name at this moment, but this this particular leader, uh, one of the most significant teachers in evangelical Christianity, was asked at a conference if he could ever be certain that he was saved. And I, I have it on audio. Uh, I have him saying, no, 
ultimately you can't be sure. Well, that is, that is a total uh, distortion of what the Bible says. Uh, and so I, I would say when we mishandle uh, what the word says as teachers, you know, James talks about incurring a stricter judgment. There's a higher standard for teachers, if you will. Uh, so I'm very aware of that. Uh, so it's very easy to teach incorrectly, handle the word incorrectly, uh, and uh, that becomes one of the biggest obstacles to people. So those would be maybe the three main things I would uh, I would see. You mentioned the idea of uh, certainty, and I want to come back to that in a minute. But you also said uh, one of the obstacles is not understanding what's been done for us in Christ. Maybe you could touch on that, expand on that. What has been done for us in Christ? I'm teeing you up here for, uh, for the gospel. <laughs> well, this is incredible. Uh, let's, let's, start, let's start with uh, Ephesians chapter 1, okay? Ephesians chapter 1 is this magnificent chapter outlining what the Father the Son and the Spirit have done to accomplish our salvation. So starting in verse 3, we have this incredible statement that we have uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So he starts with that statement of our riches. This is what we have. If we're in Christ, we have that. Every believer, no matter if they've been a believer for five minutes or uh, 50 years. So we have that. It's not something we acquire. We have it. Okay. How did we get it? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul explains, after uh, verse 3, he explains what the Father did, what the Son did, and what the Spirit did to accomplish this for us. Nowhere does it talk about anything we're supposed to do, so that's a real key too. Okay, so what does the Father do? Well, it describes that He has chosen us, uh, He has predestined us, uh, uh, and, and these things are done so that we will be in Christ. We've been, we've been uh, chosen, predestined to be in Christ, to this adoption as sons. Okay, so let's just play with that for just a moment. In the first few verses of, uh, of Ephesians 1, if I understand that, that the Father has made a determination beforehand that I would be in Christ, then once I'm in Christ uh, and have fulfilled that, right, then is there anything that I can do to, uh, to defeat his the almighty creator God's predetermination? That would be pretty nonsensical. So this is the first thing. It says that the Father has determined it. He's actively, it's not simply based on his foreknowledge. And some struggle with that. Mm -hmm. and, and, okay, so quick parentheses. What we see in, in Scripture is very clearly God is 100% sovereign and humanity is 100% responsible. And you have this theological uh, war between these two groups who want God's sovereignty uh, but don't see how you can have that with, with human responsibility and others who say you can't have human responsibility if God's totally sovereign. Well, the Bible teaches both very clearly, and it's in Ephesians chapter 2. So, in Ephesians 1, when we see the Father's choosing and his predestining, that's, a, that's, that's an unbelievably powerful thing. And it's based on that that we have all these, uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies of Christ, because that's the Father. Then, in the following verses, uh, he talks about how the Son redeems with his blood. So he's purchased us from uh, this wrath and this condemnation, which again is highlighted in Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses. 
we have been bought with his blood. Okay. Uh, if his blood is a sufficient currency uh, to, to pull us out, to buy us on the marketplace, then is there anything that I can do to devalue the currency of his blood where all of a sudden he gets his, what he paid for repossessed? It's nonsense, right? So if I understand that I've been redeemed by his blood, for me to think that I can do something to unredeem myself is, a, is really a, a, a blasphemy of his, of his blood. I mean, it, it's, it's devaluing his, his price. Uh, and we don't do these things deliberately, right? We just don't understand. Okay, so that's what the son does. And this, these are completed, finished works. How about the spirit? Well, in verses 13 and 14 there, we see that the Holy Spirit uh, seals us. Okay, so again, the, the Almighty God, uh, His Spirit seals us so that now we are in Christ. And that term is like a, a pledge, a down payment. So if, for example, let's say you're going to buy a car, and you put down a, a $500 down payment, and then you don't follow through with buying the car. Well, you lose the $500, right? Uh, or you're buying a home, you put a down payment, that earnest money, and you don't follow through. Well, you lose the earnest money. So the Holy Spirit is, is God's down payment on us, and he, he comes to live within us. He is ours. He's in us. And if there's anything that I can do, uh, to break that position in Christ, then God loses his spirit. That's how down payments work. Well, of course, these are t nonsense things. Can I overcome the, the sovereign, predestining, predetermined choosing of God? Can I devalue the currency of Christ's blood? Can I break the seal, if you will, if I can use that metaphor, of the Holy Spirit uh, in, in, in my life? Uh, these three works of, of God are the basis for us having every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so if I just understand what he's done and I think about uh, the impact of those three things, there's no way I could draw any other conclusion but what he says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace we've been saved, right? It's, it's not of our own uh, merit or works. Just like at the end of Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us. So I think understanding these basic components of salvation uh, can be just an eye-opener, especially for the new believer who has, has no concept. All they know is they, they need God. Uh, they've fallen short of, of God's glory, and they're believing in Christ uh, to cover their sins and give them life. So it really is just a Trinitarian reality. It's the full Godhead saying, this is... Uh, I'm, I'm totally in on this salvation thing, father, son, and spirit all the way in. Uh, and that's where the certainty or the assurance of salvation grows out of that reality of, uh, the salvation bought by father, son, and Holy spirit. Yeah. And just like any gift we receive, the better we know the giver, the more we understand the gift. Some things are real simple, right? Somebody gives me a gift card uh, to Amazon for $10, for example. Um, that's pretty easy to understand, right? But if I know the giver, 
I know what they're thinking. I know why they're giving it, what they might think I might want to buy or be interested in. Uh, and it just makes the gift mm -hmm. so much more, uh, so much more full, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I also know if I know the giver, I know that when I get that gift card, that it's a legit gift card. It's not going to be a scam or a, you know, anything like that. Um, so I, my confidence increases, right? Mm -hmm. So we have the, we got to know the giver. Yes. So we have the father choosing the son, redeeming the spirit sealing right. those who are saved. How do I know that those three things apply to me? Perfect. So uh, the, the terminology that Paul uses uh, in Ephesians 1. Now, he's writing a letter to saints at Ephesus, right? Believers at Ephesus. And he's distinguishing a little bit. He's talking to Gentile believers, but also talking about Jewish believers. And he's, he's including both in some sections and, and kind of distinguishing a little bit. But in this, in this section, and if, if you look at the verbiage there in Ephesians 1, and I'm just I'm flipping over there. In Ephesians 1, verse, verse 3, notice what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And it's, the, it's that first person, plural. Uh, he's referring to all believers uh, in, this, in this context. Anyone who is in Christ, okay? So are you and I in Christ? Anyone who uh, can be described in verse uh, 8 of chapter 2 as being saved at all. If you are saved... Uh, then if you have been saved, this is how it happened, right? And so if, if, a, if a person is saying, okay, I, I believed in Jesus, well, then 2.8 applies to you. That's, that's how you're saved. So you can, you can go back in the context and look at what that means, what God did. And in verse 10 of chapter 2 tells us, you're, you're this, this workmanship newly created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, notice 2.11, he says, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Uh, so notice in Ephesians, he is distinguishing between different groups of believers because he's trying to encourage the Gentiles that, that those who are believers in Christ, but who were not Jewish by, by their lineage, encouraging them that they are indeed one in the body, right? So they're not, they're not uh, missing out on these promises. So the whole the whole theme of Ephesians is that every single person who believes in Jesus Christ uh, has every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And these three elements of Father, uh, Son, and Spirit, uh, the, the, the elements or their, their, the components that they were involved in, uh, underscore that. It's no wonder he uses language like riches and lavished upon us when you describe it like that. Yeah, just overflowing. Yeah. And it's, it's not some of them. It's all of it, all of these spiritual blessings. It's just incredible. Uh, you know, and Ephesians is such a great place for a new believer. I think if I'm talking with a, a, a someone who's not a believer, I'm focused on the book of John and kind of the tools that John used in his writing, uh, because that book is specifically written to unbelievers so that they might become believers. If I'm talking to a new believer, I'm, I'm going to send them to or study with them uh, Ephesians because it, in six chapters, handles every area of the Christian life. The first three chapters focusing on who I am in Christ. What is this identity that I have? What does this mean? And then chapters four, five, and six, what am I supposed to do about it? It's mm -hmm. so practical, so simple, so straightforward. Mm -hmm. 
Let's go back to this issue of certainty. You know, we're living in postmodern, relativistic times. And in these times, certainty is almost treated as a blasphemous word. You know, how could you possibly be certain about anything? Um, but what does scripture say? You know, can a Christian be certain of their salvation? You've already hinted at this, but I want to ask you again. Yeah, so I, I, I've said it this way, uh, that the birthright of the Christian is certainty. Uh, if, if God has accomplished these things for us, and then he tells us that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, uh, then he's telling us these things so that we will, will know these things and, and have certainty. So there's no doubt. Paul never introduces doubt uh, in, in his writings. And then we can think about John also. John deals with this very directly in uh, 1 John 5, uh, verse 13. Uh, he gives us one of the purposes for this letter. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, uh, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, and that's just, that's a huge, huge statement. Uh, uh, so that you may know. Now, this is really interesting to me. Uh, so there's two words in the Greek for, that are used for, for know or knowledge. Uh, oida is one, and it means to, to understand, almost mathematically, just to intellectually understand. The second is gnosko, uh, uh, and, it, it, and that's the verb form, and it, and it refers to, or gnosis would be the noun form, but it refers to uh, learning by experiencing, okay? And sometimes these two words are used interchangeably, but when the when an author uses them in close context, close proximity, uh, they're not interchangeable. They are, they are used in their different uh, uh, understandings. John here uh, uses the, the word oida, a form of that. And he's, what he's saying is, I've, I've written these things to you who believe. Okay. Now, we can play around with this because there's a few interesting things happening. First of all, I'm, I'm writing to those who believe so that you may understand that you have eternal life. In other words, he's not even focused on our experiential element or the emotional element uh, or our coming to understand through experience. It is very simply, here's the math. You can have confidence in this. You can know uh, for certain that you have eternal life because of these things that, that I'm telling you. The other thing that's really important for assurance here in this, in first John five thirteen, is he uses the present tense of believe. Okay. It's literally, I've written to you believing. Okay. So you're the, you're a believing one in the name of the son of God. Well, if, and we'll see Jesus does something similar back in John six. If you believe in Jesus, uh, if you are a believing one, which the status of you being a believing one begins when you begin to believe. Okay. Now, I hope that made sense. Uh, if you are present tense, a believing one, then whenever that started at that moment, you became a believing one, but notice what he says here. Those who are believing ones have present tense eternal life. Uh, it, it is not conditional. They're believing, and so they have it. Now, let's say you have a believing one 
who, according to John here, has eternal life. So they have eternal life, but they, in their immaturity, they fall into some really significant sin, and they feel like they've lost their eternal life. They've lost their salvation. Well, John says you can know, have absolute certainty, that if you're believing in him, then you have eternal life. Well, what if you stop believing in him? Well, the moment you were believing in him, you possessed eternal life, which by definition can't end. So regardless of the strength of your faith, it's done. You can know, you can have understanding that it's certain uh, based on belief in him and his work, those three things we see in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and the eternal life is not something that you're simply looking for, but it's something you have present tense right now. That's a huge thing. Uh, it's, it's, it should provide us all the assurance we would ever need. But then Jesus goes a step further uh, in John chapter 6, and, and he, he uses really similar verbiage. Uh, and and I, I suspect that John is actually drawing from Jesus' words. Uh, in John chapter 6, verse 47, he says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, so it's the amen, amen, which gives it this double weight. It's this really uh, significant statement we all need to pay attention to. He says, the believing one, again, present tense, has, present tense, eternal life. Jesus himself is saying this. Uh, that's what John is echoing a little bit later. So uh, John writes it so that we can know. So he writes his gospel so that we will believe in him. And then he writes the letter so that we can have this understanding and this certainty that we have present tense eternal life. It all fits together. It's almost like there's one author. Huh? huh. Yeah. But that would be, that would be just too simple to believe that uh, God uh, moved these men and they, they, they spoke from him and wrote his word that we couldn't believe something like that now, could we? So all I have to say, I've heard this said before that, you know, to claim certainty, to claim confidence, to claim assurance is arrogant. But what you're saying, it's not arrogant because it's not rooted in us. It's rooted in the promises of God. He has said, by believing in Jesus, we have all of these things, uh, present tense. So it's not, it's not a, a matter of arrogance. It's a matter of trusting externally in the one who promised. Amen. It's, it's not, hey, I know where I'm going. I'm certain where I'm going because I'm a good person or I'm do, I've done this. It isn't that. It's I'm certain. I'm certain whose I am now. I know who I am in Christ now. I know I have certainty, not because of me. I don't merit it. I never did. But because of his name's sake, who he is, uh, he swears on his name that he'll keep his word, right? He's the sovereign. He's the creator. And when he declares it, uh, he's trustworthy. So it has nothing to do with me. And that is, is incredibly liberating and at the same time results in, in an attitude of worship. Because if I realize he is so lofty and so far above me, like Isaiah 55 uh, describes, he's so far above me, but yet he, he loves me enough to reach down, pay this incredible price so that I can have life. Uh, and, and he uh, simply offers it freely, allowing me to believe in him and, uh, and then calls me to walk in a manner worthy of my calling, just to, to walk like 
like I am his. That's not only is that liberating, that's also incredibly motivating. Uh, So anyone who understands this is going to be looking at this as a call to a different kind of life. Whereas many uh, who don't understand this will, will maybe perceive it as fire insurance or something like that. I'm just performing this mental ritual so that I don't go to hell. That, that, that is not at all uh, compatible with the concepts we find in scripture. It's just a different, different thing altogether. What you're talking about really speaks to the importance of discipleship after conversion, doesn't it? You can be Amen. converted. You can uh, believe, like John said, he, he wrote these things that we may believe and have life in his name. You believe you're transferred from darkness to light, from death to life. And if you are not discipled and grow in the understandings of, for example, Ephesians 1, you lose out on the motivating realities that you're talking about. Most definitely. And this is why in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4, Paul talks about uh, this. Uh, he talks about this process and the and the various offices or roles that God gave to the church, that Christ gave to the church, in fact, uh, so that the church could could grow and mature. And of course, the uh, the, uh, the 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 fourth of those offices is the pastor and teacher. And there, the pastor and teacher is one who is teaching the word of God. Uh, teaching believers how to teach themselves the Word of God to become mature and independent so they can feed themselves. Uh, So pastors and teachers have this incredible responsibility. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that in what we call the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. Uh, And so the idea is it's not just about getting people to believe uh, or you know, trying to make converts. It's, it's about uh, being committed to people and as much as we can uh, to, to walk with them through that process, to, to lead them to Christ so they, they can believe in Christ, they're introduced to Christ. Uh, obviously, we're not saving them. He is, but we're leading them to him, if you will, if I can use that term. And then uh, ideally... We're still working with that person, discipling, helping them to grow, helping them to, to study the word, helping them to go through this process. And, and, as, uh, and pastors and teachers have a significant responsibility in this. Uh, it's not only their responsibility, but it's, it is the, the core of what they're doing. And, uh, and for each believer, uh, we have a responsibility to be t- teaching each other. Colossians 3 says that. So while we're not all pastors, uh, we are all in a position where we're supposed to be teaching, and teaching means discipling one another. So you're absolutely right. Discipleship. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that uh, the author of the Hebrews was upset in Ephesians, or in Hebrews chapter 5, saying you should be on meat at this point, but you're on milk. You should be teachers at this point, not necessarily pastors, but you should be teaching one another, spurring one another on to loving good deeds. Right. It's, so it's like a Venn diagram, if you think of it, that all, all pastors are teachers, but not our, uh, all teachers are pastors. Right. Uh, and uh, and it's, a, you know, it's a tough time for pastors, all kinds of complexities. Um, but m- many pastors, both by peer pressure, by the, uh, the expectations of their people, uh, and maybe you could even add to that by the training that they're receiving in, in different settings, uh, pastors are 
are largely moving away from the teaching of the word as their focus. And so when, when I, when I uh, have the opportunity to interact with a pastor who's committed to the word as a focus, I, I just, I rejoice in that. So I praise God for you, Josiah, for your ministry and how you are being faithful in that. And at the same time, it doesn't absolve, uh, you know, the believers who are in the church family who are not pastoring in, in those official roles. It does not absolve them of the responsibility to teach each other, to, to make disciples and to ensure that our relationships with each other are deliberate and not just uh, wasting our time. Let's say I'm growing in my knowledge of the riches that I've been given in Christ and my assurance is growing. I can feel it. I can sense it. I, I'm walking in confidence. So I'm convinced that I can be certain of my salvation. Can I be sure of a brother or sister in Christ's salvation, someone around me, someone that I love, my wife, my kids. Uh, can I be sure of someone else's salvation? Boy, that's a great question. And I might surprise you with my answer. Um, so let, let's go over to uh, 1 Corinthians for a minute. And, uh, and let's see. Let's do, uh, let's do chapter 5. And specifically verse 11. But I'll draw it to context just a little bit. Uh, so the Corinthians had a problem. The Corinthians uh, were believers, but they were behaving like infants and they were behaving like fleshly people. Okay. So uh, at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, Paul identifies these four kinds of people, right? The, the natural person, the unsaved, the spiritual person, the person who's walking in the spirit, uh, the infant, the new believer, and then the fleshly believer, the, the believer who's not a new believer, but's walking like it, okay? So he introduces these four different people. And the problem is the Corinthians, it seems like uh, largely are in that fourth group. They're behaving, they're, they're walking in the flesh, behaving like, like children, uh, like newborns when they have no excuse to do that. You know, a, a newborn, we would expect to, to fall over or to make a mess because that's they don't have the dexterity and the maturity yet to, to avoid those things. But, but a, a, you know, a 40 year old who's uh, spilling everything all over the place because they just don't care. We, we would not look at that the same way. You know, it's cute when a, a six month old does it, when a 40 year old does it, it's kind of dis disgusting. Right. So, but that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were, they were behaving in a fleshly way, doing awful things. And so in chapter five, you know, he's challenging these believers that they should be living differently. He doesn't tell them they're not saved. He says, for example, in verse one, there's this immorality reported among them that's, that's not even done among the pagans, among the Gentiles who have really no ethics at all, just awful things. So he, he rebukes that. Uh, and, and then he says in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Okay, But he explains, I didn't mean the immoral people of this world, because then you'd have to leave the world, right? They're everywhere. He said, but instead, I'm telling you not to associate with a brother uh, uh, if he is an immoral person. Now, here's, here's what I want to here, here's the, the point. It's a little different topic, but to answer your question, okay, in this context, he, he refers to, in the English translation, what we, what we read as uh, 
any so-called brother, okay? But in verse 11, uh, the, the word is, uh, the root is onama, uh, and it's, it's, it's one who's named, okay? So it's like a brother who's named. In other words, Paul is telling us in chapter 5 what our standard is. He is say, saying that if someone calls themselves a brother, we're to treat them like a brother. He doesn't give a litmus test any way that you or I can identify with certainty whether someone is a brother. It's just simply about whether they're, they're called a brother. So, uh, you know, you gave examples of, you know, my wife and, and, and daughters. They claim to know Christ. Uh, I see evidence uh, I see Christ-likeness in their life. I see growth. I see the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. And so because I see these things in their lives, I can say I'm confident, you know, like looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, I'm confident that the Spirit is bearing fruit in them, and He does that in His own children. So I, I, I'm confident they're in Christ, but I don't have any mechanism where I can have certainty uh, knowing someone else's heart. Uh, Hebrews 4 gets into this just a little bit too. Uh, If you notice Hebrews 4 uh, verses 12 and 13, we often take this as a passage about the Bible. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, but but it's talking about a, a person here, and we see that clearly in verse 13. So I think 12 and 13 is talking about Christ, and notice what it says. The Word, and I would say capital W, uh, the Word, Christ, is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the vision of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, I, I can't do that. I don't know that. I can't see that. In verse 13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Okay. So the question then is, if... He has the ability to discern like this, and I don't, then I have to trust him with his own children, right? If John 3.16 applies to my wife and my daughters, that God loved them and uh, gave his only begotten son for them, and then John 6.47, that they believed in him and they have eternal life, I have to trust not in them for their salvation. I have to trust him uh, that he's that he is keeping his word, uh, and then I, I have to uh, treat them as a brother because they're, they're saying, I've believed in Christ. So they're naming themselves as a brother or a sister, and so I treat them on that basis. Does that at all answer your question? It does, and I think there's a commonality between the two questions in that uh, our default position, it seems, is to look at ourselves, is to look inward at um, how I'm doing. And you're saying both cases, look to the promise, look to him, look to uh, the son, look to what the spirit has done. It's to look externally, whether it's for my own assurance or assurance of my wife, my kids, whatever. Yeah. So this also, there's another significant implication. Okay. If the assurance and the certainty comes from understanding his promises, then what about uh, the infant who dies? Uh, or uh, you know, a, a woman has a miscarriage. W- what about that child? Uh, or what about someone who is 
so severely uh, mentally disadvantaged that they, from our perspective, don't have the capacity to believe or, or not. Again, if I'm focusing on that person and what they're doing, I can't judge their heart. So I, I'm, I'm going to make a judgment based on absolutely nothing. But if, on the other hand, I'm trusting in him, and I know that this is an individual that Jesus Christ died for and that God loves, and uh, the condition of salvation is belief, and I would argue uh, that an infant in the womb can believe. Now, you could, you, you could argue with me and say, well, how can you believe if one isn't sent? And I get, I get that. That's a different conversation. Uh, someone who has a severe uh, mental uh, disability, they, they may not be able to understand Lewis Berry Chafer's, you know, eight volumes uh, of, of theology, but they can understand enough to believe in, in Christ. And so my point here is that the confidence is in him. As I have found occasion to counsel parents who have, have lost very, very young ones and, and have wrestled with this issue, and it comes up with students all the time, uh, the confidence is in him. Do we trust in him enough to care for these little children, uh, to know how to care for them, and to be concerned about their well-being and their salvation, uh, rather than uh, trusting in the person and their ability or lack of lack of ability. Mm -hmm. And so, very similar. When we talk about people who have professed faith, we've seen them come to faith. Our kids, and then they enter a season of rebellion and yeah. parents are watching their teens rebel and they may even come right out and say, I don't believe that stuff anymore. How would you counsel parents through that? It's very painful, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, for a parent to be in that situation is painful, not counseling the parents. That's, you know, obviously you sympathize, but, uh, but that can be a joy because you're encouraging someone in Christ. The, the challenge is, is as simple as this, I think. Uh, we want snapshots, but life is a movie. Uh, the snapshot thing gives us a frozen moment. And at any moment, I can be, if you take a snapshot of me at the right moment, I am spiritual. I look like, you know, I look like this incredibly righteous person that, that uh, you know, you'd, you'd want to be just like. If you take a snapshot at a different moment, I could be the worst of sinners, right? And you look at these two and you say, this cannot possibly be the same person. These snapshots don't reflect this. Uh, so how do we deal with that? If I am looking to the person, looking to their deeds or their activities or their quote-unquote fruit, and I look at a snapshot of when they're struggling I have to conclude they're not saved because the snapshot is this is this is a picture of an unsaved person. The problem is I can't see their heart. I can't I can't see their history. I can't see whether they have believed in Christ or not. All I see is the actions at that moment are horrible, uh, even to the point where they're openly rejecting God. So I'm looking at a snapshot. In fact. God doesn't seem to be limited by these snapshots. You know, if you think of a, a plot of a movie or a story even, uh, you know, where, where the, it, there's the, this ebb and flow and, and things get really, really sad and things get really happy. That's life, right? 
So there's this movement, uh, this trajectory. And sometimes uh, the trajectory is, is tragically interrupted. Uh, you know, th think of any movie you watch. And I challenge people to, to think about the philosophy of film and look at how storytellers uh, are so adept at telling stories. If in the, in the beginning of, a, of an hour and 40 minute movie, you know, 20 minutes in, the problems that are apparent seem to be solved and everybody's happy, you know, <laughs> that's just a, that, it can't go that way or the movie would end after 20 minutes. We still got another hour 20, which means there's going to be a whole new set of problems. Uh, this, this, as happy as this is right now, it's about to just go into the tank. And so uh, for parents, I, I would encourage them. This moment is only a moment, just like you had stages with your children in, in, in infancy and then toddlers and just all these different stages. Uh, we go through these times. If I looked at first Corinthians and I looked at these believers and that was the only snapshot I saw, I would, I would uh, assume they never grew up. But if I looked at a snapshot just a few months later, when Paul writes the second epistle, I would think, wow, these people grew up. So I would, I would say, looking at the example of the Corinthians uh, to see how someone who's really struggling can do better. I would also point out the example of the Ephesians. The church at Ephesus was doing fantastic. I mean, they were the central church in Acts. They were fantastic. But then we get to Revelation uh, and we see the letter to Ephesus and they had left their first love. So uh, two different snapshots. One, they look fantastic. The next, they're, they're terrible. The Corinthians, they look terrible. And then they, the next one, they look much better. Uh, instead of focusing on the moment, focus on God is going to fulfill his promise in, in uh, Romans chapter 8. He's going to bring his children to conformity to Christ, even if that takes their entire lifetime. So be encouraged with that. Be familiar with Romans 8. Be familiar with Hebrews chapter 12, which tells us that the father disciplines the child he loves, the son he loves. That's not pleasant. It's difficult. And it looks awful, but in the end, it has good results. Mm -hmm. What role does the fruit of the Spirit, which you mentioned, Galatians 5, play in our assurance, if any? Well, John talks about that also. Uh, in, in, in 1 John, he gets into this. Now, he's already, he's already explained that, that the, uh, the assurance is in the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh, in the believing and the having eternal life. Uh, but he also talks about the deeds as, as, as advocating for us, as being in evidence. But uh, they are not authoritative, if that makes sense. Uh, we, can, we can be deceptive. For example... In Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira who, who, I mean, they look to be very holy. They're, they're so sacrificial, so giving. And if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit in that situation, nobody would have ever found out what they had done, right? Mm -hmm. So they appear to have this fruit of the Spirit, but they're deceptive. Uh, they were behaving very wickedly. God didn't unsave them. He just said, all right, your opportunity is done. I'm taking you home. Now, uh, on the flip side, you can have somebody, you can have a tree in the wintertime 
that isn't bearing fruit. Well, if you know that an apple tree is an apple tree based on its fruit and it doesn't have any fruit, how do you know it's an apple tree, right? Well, because the label on it, when I bought it at the stores, it was an apple tree. Somebody has given it an identity, right? Okay, silly example. Uh, so John does talk about this. He does talk about uh, how we uh, uh, are, uh, how our deeds provide evidence. Uh, but like uh, in, in notice in chapter three, for example, uh, uh Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth, okay? Deed and truth. We know by this that we are of the truth. Now, here he uses the word gnosko. We, we come to know by experiencing. We, we get to see this tested out, so we come to have confidence, whereas based on the truth, we, under, we understand. We have certainty of knowledge, but now in this other approach, our deeds help us to come to experience it. So we become familiar and confident that way. But he says in verse 19, we know by this we're of the truth and we'll assure our heart before him. So now we're assuring our heart before him. But whether our heart is assured or not has no relevance to our position. It's about whether we're encouraged or not, right? But verse 20 says, in whatever our heart condemns us. So this is the flip side. Uh, my, my heart may be assured by my deeds. Hey, Lord, you're using me to do these great things. I feel really close to you right now. But then in whatever our heart condemns us, oh, Lord, you're not using me. I'm failing so much. I, I don't feel like uh, I'm of any use to you. I, surely I can't be in you, right? What does he say in verse 20? God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. But what he just said is God is greater than our hearts. If our heart does condemn us, it doesn't change our position. So I would, I would caution us, like, Paul, like John is doing here, he's, he's reminding us that our deeds can be an, a, a means of appropriate assurance, but uh, they are not the object of certainty. The truth about God is the, the object of certainty. I think just a common sense reading of even the fruit of the spirit makes us come to that conclusion. Like you look at this list, uh, love, joy, peace, patience. If I think that my certainty, my assurance of salvation needs to be rooted in how I produce and evidence those things in my life. Well, hang on a second. I know some people that are devout atheists that are pretty joyful, that are pretty faithful to their spouse, that are pretty patient, even more than me, perhaps. And so all of a sudden, if I root my assurance at least the core of my assurance in those fruits and not as a secondary assurance, but as my core, that's pretty scary for me, at least. I don't want to project on anyone else, but it's scary for me. But if like you've repeatedly told us to look outside of ourselves to the promise of God, who to say it crassly has put skin in the game, you know, he is in, you look at Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham, he, and Genesis chapter 15, when he divides the animal, he himself passes through. It's against himself, against his namesake. Then in Ephesians 1, like you said, he's in. It's against himself. And so that has to be our primary. And then like you said and pointed us to First John, the fruit of the Spirit are ornaments on that yeah. assurance. You know, it points us back to that promise that we're really rooted ourselves in. I, I love how you put it. I, I love the, the idea of ornaments. Uh, that, and you think of a tree that the fruit is kind of an ornament on the tree. It's, it's 
It's, it's an expression of its identity, not a determiner of its identity, right? right yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, some will accuse those who hold to this view that you and I are holding to because we believe it's biblical. Uh, some would accuse us of, of demotivating good works. But that, that is just a, a kind of baffling because Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why he did this, uh, so that we would be producing these good works, so that he'll be glorified in our deeds, in our works, in his grace. So the, the, the good works do not determine our identity. They simply are expressions of what we're designed to be. So again, if I know the giver, if I am uh, becoming intimately acquainted with the one who's given me this gift, then I become intimately acquainted with what I'm designed to be. And then I can do what I'm supposed to be doing, what I'm made to do. And that is when I am fulfilled. I am, I am filled with joy because I am fulfilling what he has designed me to be. It's a marvelous thing. I think of one of my favorite, I'll, re I'll reference a movie quote again, one of my favorite movie lines of all time. It struck me when I was a kid because uh, I love to run. I always, always have loved not to jog, but to run, you know, to sprint and do that kind of stuff. Anyway, Chariots of Fire. I saw this as a, as a kid. Uh, so it's super old. Most people haven't even seen it anymore. But, um, but Eric Little, this, uh, this character who, who, who knows the Lord in this, in this, in this story, uh, he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I just love that. So in this, you know, this example, he's not running for his own pleasure. He's running because he know, knows God gave him the tools to do that, and he, he, he feels God's joy that his creation is fulfilling it. You know, in this one small way, it's beautiful purpose. Uh, and I, I just love that because I, I use it as a metaphor in my own life that if I am running uh, in a way that honors him, then I feel his pleasure. That doesn't give me my identity. That doesn't make me who I am. It's simply an outworking of who he's designed me to be. Yeah, It's this idea of when we better understand the liberty we have in Christ, it's not stifling, it's, it's freeing, it's motivating, it throws us forward with joy and thanksgiving, uh, rather than uh, causing us to sit on our laurels and do nothing. That seems to, that would be an indication that you don't understand the liberty or Ephesians 1, all that you have in Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Perfectly said. Well, let's wrap up with this. How then, if I'm listening to this, I, I want to grow in my assurance. What are some practical steps besides reading Ephesians chapter one and going back and listening to this podcast again, what are some practical steps that I can do to grow in my assurance so that this time next year, I'm more certain that I am today. Okay. So if you can't read Ephesians one and you can't listen to this podcast, then how about first Peter <laughs> read first Peter. Okay. So, and I'll give a, I'll give a, a step two there, but in first Peter uh, chapter one, uh, in verses three through five, I would, I would encourage a believer who's wrestling with this uh, to read these three verses and, 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 uh, and focus on each of these words and statements that Peter is making. 
because he gives 11 or 12, depending on how you count it, specific statements of our certainty of our position, which should lead us to assurance. And he says it in verse six, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for now for a little while you've been distressed by various trials. See, that's the problem. In life, we get hit by these trials. It's like we get all this the great theology and these wonderful things that we hear, whether in church or in our own reading, we hear these and then boom, we're hit in the face with severe difficulty. And Peter is telling us, uh, Peter is telling us that we should be rejoicing in our position in Christ because that's how we deal with the difficulties of life. That's how we deal with the, the various trials. Uh, and, and Peter would know, right? Peter's the one who jumped out of the boat and began to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus. He knows what this all means. So he's, he's learned that lesson. He's gone through trials and difficulties, and he's realized the secret to rejoicing and having confidence is, is not necessarily practical steps of, uh, of, of habits necessarily. It's just looking at him. It's uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 keeping focused on Christ. And so, uh, so that's kind of the, 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 the data. Now, the practical application of it, I would say, if I don't know the giver, I can't understand the gift. I can't have confidence in the gift. How do I get to know the giver? I must, I must, I must be in his word. So if I'm, if I'm saying, okay, I want, I want practical steps that don't involve me reading the word, which is obviously not what you're saying. I'm, I'm just using that as an example. You know, if, if, if I want practical steps, but I don't want to do the work of studying the word and reading the word, then I've just said, you know, I'll eat food as long as I don't have to do the work of putting it in my mouth. Well, guess what? I'm not going to get any food then. Uh, I have to do that work. We're all designed to do that work. And, and the word of God is, is communicated in such a way as to be understood. I need some help. I need some guidance. But much of it is it, it, I can understand. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be the first practical step. Be in the word constantly. If I'm not in the word, I don't know the giver. I can't appreciate and understand the gift. Uh, secondly, uh, I, I would... I would uh, recommend that I am examining my own life. Uh, and we see a little bit of this in 1 John. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians also. But the idea of just, it's kind of like the, the old song goes, count your blessings. Look at what God is doing. Uh, look at how he's using you. Uh, be thankful. Don't take those things for granted. Don't ignore those things. Uh, so be in the word. Be filled with gratefulness and, and alertness to what God is doing. And then third, I would suggest spend time with people that you can encourage in their faith and who encourage you in yours. Uh, because when we're with each other and we have that kind of fellowship, we build each other up. Uh, and that's, that's the building up of the body together. Uh, so, we're not designed to be alone uh, on an island all the time. And I think that can help. So I'd say being in the word, being observant and grateful, and then being in fellowship uh, with other like-minded believers. That'd be three, maybe uh, first steps. That's great. And that's, 
you know, that third one, especially in during this time when we cannot gather, we felt that I felt that, you know, there is a mistaking perception out there that we are, and I want to be careful here, but no matter what for Christians, our health is in jeopardy right now, you know, whether it's our spiritual health or our physical health, and, and that may be bleak, but we serve a great God um, by not being with people. We are vulnerable. We are vulnerable because we're not around uh, people who can encourage us in those ways. Absolutely. You know, and I'll say this somewhere along the line, we got so concerned about this life that we defended at all costs and self-defense is appropriate. But I'll, I'll tell you if, if, if we have opportunities to engage with brothers and sisters, people who need us and we aren't doing it because we're scared they'll make us sick, then shame on us. That is not how our savior taught us to, to live. And so, yes, we have to be wise. Yes, we have to be good stewards. Yes, uh, you know, you have to realize that what you do impacts your family. And so you have to weigh the order of priorities biblically. Uh, and I have to measure those things too. Uh, but if I am just focused on my own self-defense and my own well-being, then I have made an idol of my own life and that is not at all what I'm designed to be. So, so maybe in that we can encourage each other. Let's, let's, let's be considerate of each other, but let's also be there for each other and not be so focused on uh, avoiding sickness. Yeah. Even in that famous passage that we quote all the time, especially now in Hebrews 10, where it says, don't forsake the gathering of people. Uh, it's for the encouragement and even more, as the day is approaching, even more as time passes and we look forward to that, uh, that blessed hope that we look forward to. Um, and I just, I think I kicked the hornet's nest right at the time that we're about to sign off. So that's uh, perfect. <laughs> well, I'll give you one quick story. So, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, going to shake hands with a, with a student because um, this, this is a guy that I, you know, I care about. And he pulls away and says, I, I'm really sick. I don't want to get you sick. So guess what I did? I gave him a big hug and said, I, I don't care. I love you anyway. Well, guess what? Three days later, <laughs> I was horribly sick. And I thought, okay, maybe my strategy is not a really good one. So I, I, I give you that story just to say the principle is sound. I have to work on how to, how to apply it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us, Dr. Conan. Talking about, again, such a perennial and crucial issue like assurance of salvation. Um, and you've given some sound biblical foundational um, data, uh, places where we can go, but also some really uh, uh, practical advice for how to move forward in those ways. We've got to think biblically. We've got to know our Savior. We've got to look to him uh, first and foremost. And that's a discipline. That's a discipline and something that our world that we're living in uh, fights against actively. Uh, wants to pull our attention away from the author and perfecter of our faith and toward ourselves and toward the things that uh, are external uh, to us other than God. So I appreciate the reminders and I want to thank everyone for joining us today. And Lord willing, we will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.